Hey everyone, it's Cam. I'm really excited to announce that Boney is partnering with a company called Sendwave to help you all send money back to Bangladesh uh, from the comforts of your phone. Um, I don't know about you, but when I send money back home, I usually go to the money transfer places in the Bengali neighborhoods, but this really isn't a good time to do that because of COVID. Um, so Sendwave makes it super easy. And right now, if you use a promo code, the Boney promo code, B-O-N-Y, they'll actually give you $10 to start off uh, for free. Um, the service itself is also free. So those money transfer places charge you, but Sunwave does not, which is amazing. The app is available everywhere. And you can also use their website, Sendwave, and you can send money directly to someone's bank account in Bangladesh, or you could send it directly to their Bcash account. And I don't know about you, but all of my family members in Bangladesh use Bcash. Um, it's super easy. Um, I've sent money myself using Sendwave, and they literally received it instantly, which is insane. Uh, so download Sendwave. Uh, it's on all the app stores as well as their website and use the Boney code B-O-N-Y and you'll get $10 to start. Thank you. Enjoy today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island and all over the world. So Welcome. And enjoy. Hey, Kosima, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Nisha. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of Great course. Business. And as we know, you have a podcast as well, right? I do. I am a fellow podcaster. So if you could touch base upon what inspired you to start a podcast? Great question. I had no intention of creating a podcast. <laughs> It was initially, so Bereavement Room was initially a death cafe. Mm. And, you know, I hosted a couple of death cafes, but they are physically and logistically taxing. You know, people drop out in the last minute. And I just felt that the natural progression would be to move over virtually because it's easier to manage. Also, I'd, I'd worked in tech for over 10 years. And it just occurred to me that a podcast would be an easier way to to manage what I was trying to do. So it wasn't intentional. What's a, what's a death cafe? Yeah, so, I mean, death cafes are really popular in the US, less so popular in the UK. Uh, so a death cafe is like a group that you would meet up with maybe weekly or monthly, and it's hosted or facilitated by someone, and people just attend, and they, they talk about what I essentially do on my podcast, which is tell their stories, share their experiences of grief, meeting like-minded people that are going to relate to what your experiences are. So it's, it's just kind of going to an event and, and socializing with people that have had similar experiences. Well, I didn't know those existed here. Nisha, are you familiar with I'm old, I'm sorry. Nisha, are you familiar with those here? I'm a, this is the first time I'm ever hearing of it. Um, that, that sounds you know, like a great community to you know, help you grieve. I think that's fantastic. If you can tell us, was there a specific reason that this particular, that you started this podcast related to this particular topic? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a massive backstory to Bereavement Room, which I released at the end of series one. Uh, it was my personal experiences. So I think that when it comes to bereavement support, particularly for minorities, if you're going to a mainstream charity organisation for that support, uh, it might not necess necessarily be met with cultural sensitivity or from the understanding that, you know, if you're talking about your faith, for example, me identifying as Muslim, I struggled with being in that environment because I didn't see anyone that looked like me or was from where I was from or maybe was from somewhere in the global diaspora. And often it's met with, I'm just going to go out and say it, racism. So I had support experiences trying to access therapy services going to these bereavement events and it just didn't feel safe to me and I just felt that perhaps I should just create my own space where it is safe and people can talk about their experiences openly without fear of judgment. So you touched upon this idea where there needs to be environment kind of suited to you or the minority in the environment. And I believe on your podcast, you touched upon not just that, but also mental health. And I'm going to tie the grief part into it as well as mental health. Do you feel that culturally speaking, there needs to be more diversity when discussing these topics? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you go to a UK charity, mm -hmm. I mean, they do great work, but it's, the you know, it's very much a Victorian perspective on death and bereavement is very diverse. Although grief is universal, the narrative around bereavement is not. And absolutely, you do need more diversity in the room. You need to hear stories from people in India, in Africa, um, in South America, all parts of the world. You know, we have communities within communities. And if you don't have that diversity in the room, how are they supposed to hold space for you? It will often turn into an explaining session. And I don't really want to spend 50 minutes explaining what Islam is, because that's not why I'm there. Right, right. And to further go into this topic of not just like the majority and minority culture, but we can touch upon the South Asian culture in particular. Mm. Do you ever notice or perhaps have ever experienced a sort of taboo or a lack of discussion surrounding how to properly deal with grief or how to properly address mental health? Yeah, I mean, from my own experiences, when I've had bereavements, you know, for the Bangladeshi perspective is that, oh, be strong and just pray. And we don't really need to talk about our emotions or feelings. And it almost feels like a taboo topic. And uh, that's something that I really struggle with because, yeah, I can go and pray but I need to have an open conversation about what's mm -hmm. happened. Uh, it's not linear like that. I mean, it's great to be spiritual and to have religion, but it doesn't work on its own. And I, and I, I don't know if that's a generational thing where they just relied on faith to get them through hard times. But I, I think the life that we're living now, you know, this generation of social media, et cetera, 
praying alone is not going to help and saying being strong is kind of invalidating someone's experience that you don't really want to hear what what they're going through or, or holding space for them but I would also say with the Bangladeshi community I don't know how much of it is you're stigmatized I think it's a lack of awareness and education I do you think the, the Muslim community is different uh, with their approach to death I feel like in certain well religions or cultures uh, death is more celebrated like you see, I've just, you know, I've gone to um, wakes of other cultures where they're just like laughing and having a ball. And it's more of a celebratory mm. event for the person's life. I can't say I've been to any janazas or, you know, Muslim, um, you know, events after somebody passes away where it's that celebratory. Have, have you noticed that with, this, you know, the, the, the way we respond is different for, from our culture and our religion? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I've only ever been to Muslim funerals and a Greek Orthodox funeral in my life. And there is a celebratory aspect to it after. And you often see that in South Asian communities because everyone comes together. But it's not in the way that you see on TV in Western funerals, which is what I grew up understanding it's very celebratory and people talk and you're celebrating someone's life but but i i often feel from my own experiences you know after the janaza we do have a get together and there is a distribution of food and it is really great and everyone's there for you but it lasts all of one day it's almost like a task or a chore to me that's how it feels rather than we're celebrating someone's life and, and there is a difference there. I think there's a, a massive difference between different faiths and, and cultures and how they do that. So with the different cultures and how they possibly deal with grief or how they celebrate it or go about handling it with their family members, on your podcast, how do you go about letting your audience members deal with grief? How, how do you teach them or perhaps give them a space to deal with it? Is it based on who you interview? Is it based on the themes you present? Okay. I mean, I produce all the episodes. You know, I have conversations. I produce all the episodes before we record. And uh, I relate it back to the context of their story. Mm-hmm. You know, some of my guests might not want to talk about the funeral. There might be topics that they don't want to touch on, and we don't. We we openly have a conversation about that to begin with, but it is very much shaped around the narrative and context of their bereavement. And nine times out of ten, everyone wants to talk about the funeral and what happened and what their what their rituals are. But it is literally a, a very open and honest conversation about what should be discussed and that it's okay that, you know, if it gets a bit too hard during the conversation, which it has, people have cried on the podcast, we've laughed, we've gotten angry. Um and we've honestly said that we can edit that out. We don't 
you know, we, we can edit that after if they're not comfortable with that. So that's kind of how I hold space. I give the guest full control. They, they see the produced episode to begin with and then they hear the final transcript at the end, just like you guys do. And that's how I hold space for them. Uh, I just give them full control on, on how they want to tell their story. Because sometimes when you're you know, when you're telling your story, you know, it can get very intense at times and it can be very painful because you are openly reflecting and then you might listen back and be like, mm, I don't actually want to share that information with everyone. And perhaps that was just like a therapeutic moment for me to think out loud. But actually, mm-hmm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't want that out there. So going back to something you mentioned earlier, you mentioned you were in tech. You know, I've been talking to a lot of people on the podcast about uh, that her um, mid-career change professions um, and follow their passion. Mm. Um, is that is that something that happened to you, or are you still? Is the podcast more of a hobby, uh, and you're still in? You know, you still have a day job in tech. Yeah, so I mean, I worked in the corporate world for like over a decade, and then obviously things changed, and I I did make a career transition. I started uh, training in the therapy field and I started doing bereavement training and yeah, I essentially changed my career. I now work in bereavement in my daytime job for a charity and I run the podcast on the side in my spare time or on my days off. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. And I love that. You know, like I said, a lot of the themes when I've been talking to people is, you know, we're pressured to go into certain fields uh, as, as they see, um, huh, yeah. you know, for, for stability, um, you know, doctors, lawyers, but and, and even maybe even tech now, you know, that's where a lot of the monetary gains are. Um, but a lot of our passions lie elsewhere. And it seems like, you, you know, that's the case with you. And, and it's great to see people follow their passions and, and do things that they want to do as opposed to what, you know, we've been told we need to do as, as, uh, as they see. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I don't come from a family where I was told what to do, but I get that a lot of my friends and people I know have, and they've they've had to go down a certain career path. But being in the corporate world, you know, nine to five, being glued to a screen, that's not great. It's not very healthy. And I think that it is important to be able to, as you say, pursue those side hustles and other goals and whatever it may be, you know, uh, yeah. to create something on your own without someone telling you how to do it, which is what often happens in your bog standard nine to five. Yeah. You hear that, Nisha? You still, you, you don't have to make the mistake we made. Start from the beginning. I am taking notes, Cam. Taking notes from both of you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's easier said than done. Um, you know, mid-career, you, you know, it's, it's especially in tech and finance and things like that, if you're used to, you know, a certain amount of income and, you know, uh, or even if you've worked hard to get into a certain level, you know, just quit, leaving that is difficult. Um, so it's, 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 it's much easier if you're just starting out. And, you know, and the thing about our parents is that, you know, I know many people who, and I'm sorry, we're changing topics, but I think it's important because people always ask about this kind of stuff. But I think it's um, it's it's great that you'll see a lot of uh, Desi kids that pursue their passion initially and their parents are hesitant. But then once they start doing well, 
Because, you know, people always say, like, if you follow your passions, you end up just being successful. A lot of people mm-hmm. just follow their... So, yeah, after a while, you end up doing well and making money, then your parents just come around. Right? Like, so... Yeah. That's the way I've seen, that's the way I've seen too, a lot of people. I mean, not, not every single field, but just uh, sometimes it just works out. It takes a couple of years of, you know, parents being angry, but it works out. <laughs> and often that's generational because, you know, in their time, it was, it was, you know, it was a different thing. I sometimes think that, is that a generational thing? Uh, whereas is, is it different for second and third, fourth generation Bengalis? Uh, I would kind of throw that question out there. Does it depend on when your parents were born and what what their experiences are because they may have anxieties about that and, that, and that's why they're pretty angry about it. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. I mean, I think that, like, for example, my kids, I'm going to be more uh, lenient about them following their passions. So I think that's, that's definitely a good point. Um, what do you think, Nisha? You know, I was, before you got into this topic, I was about to ask you, Kosama, how was the transition? Was it easy or hard? But judging from how you both are speaking about this matter, I'm assuming it was difficult. Was the transition difficult? Um, I think I was asked this before uh, on my podcast. And, you know, I reflect on that and I think about it and... In some ways, it was easy. In some ways, it was hard, I guess you could say. It happened slowly and very naturally. Mm -hmm. But it requires investment. In order to change your career, it's not something that happens overnight. You need to invest in it. I I had volunteered for six months before I was even be able to get a paid job in bereavement, right? I, I did training courses. I enrolled in one of the best psychotherapy schools in London to upskill myself because technology and marketing doesn't have anything to do with psychotherapy or bereavement. They're the complete opposite careers. <laughs> so, you know, you do have to invest in yourself. And if you do that, it's not difficult. It's only seen as difficult if you can't be bothered to put the time in. And I, and I, I think often we we forget that if you want to change a career or do something, it's going to require, you know, heavy lifting. And, and that's where the difficulty comes. Do you think and there's an opportunity to uh, ever marry the two? Because just thinking about it, tech is such a stressful field. I'm imagining mm-hmm. you have a lot of folks uh, being overworked. Uh, you can somehow take what you've learned in ther- you know, therapy and then apply that to you know, work and go back to work in tech in just another role? Yeah, I mean, it's transferable. I wouldn't be able to do this podcast had I not had my tech and marketing background. I don't think it would have come as easy to me. If I wanted to go back to tech, yeah, I could. You know, this could be just seen as a career break. I I could go back if I wanted to for a short while. I could freelance. There's a lot of flexibility there. But I'm enjoying what I'm doing right now. And... I have no intention of returning anytime soon. If I can avoid it, I will. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking more. I was thinking that in in tech, there's a need because I I've, I've definitely seen companies pay more focus to mental health. Okay. And obviously, and, and, and obviously bereavement is a part of that. And tech is notorious for 
you know, you know, you know, having environments that are, are very difficult and you know, high pressure, um, okay. you know, high concrete investment in environments. So people with your skill set now, you know, with with your uh, you know newfound skills in therapy, but also your experience in tech, you know, I, I can see that being a a way to kind of combine the two skills and, and, and do well. Yeah, so there are business psychologists and welfare advisors. I think that's what those job roles are within tech or media and marketing. But the UK has a long way to go. We don't invest in stuff like that. And those roles are very far and few. That's an ideal world, what you're describing there. And that's how it should be, actually. But we've got a long way to go in that. That hasn't happened quite. It just hasn't happened yet. I'm aware that because a majority of my family works in tech. My dad's an engineer. My sister's a cybersecurity engineer. And they both work in these fields that are so rigorous. And I often hear from my dad and my sister, why did I even go into tech? Like, why did I even go into this field? I, I hear them questioned a lot. So coming from somebody who did work in tech, what initially drew you towards that field? Since, you know, it's difficult and, you know, it has a lot of benefits. So what was your particular reason? Um, Again, it wasn't linear. So my path has never been linear. You know, when I left university, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to work Mm -hmm. in publishing. That's where I should be right now, but that's not where I am. And, Again, it was just a natural progression. You know, I ended up working in marketing. And then because I am the generation that is pre-social media, things started to change in in the space that you had to move away from your traditional marketing methods. Everything had become digital. Everything had become tech-focused. That it was just a natural progression for me to go into tech because... A, that's where all the jobs were. B, that's where the money was. And it was just a a natural progression from going from pre-social media to a world where where the world now revolves around social media and and technology. So it was me being the age that I am, just moving with the times and not being stuck. Would you ever pursue writing again? Would you ever pursue that path? Great question. Everyone, Everyone asked me that question and... I think writers are very poorly paid. I think they're poorly recognized. Oh, you can tell me about it, believe me. <laughs> I can tell you. And it doesn't sit well with me. And also, there's not that many diverse writers. Like, if you go to publishing, right, there is such a white-dominated field. It's very aristocratic, very middle-class and white female. And I hate that. And there's a lot of microaggressions in the publishing industry. And it just puts me off. I mean, if I want to write my own blog, if, if, if that's what you mean, you know, self-published, that could be an idea. I could do that. Nobody's stopping me. But... It really doesn't sit well with me when you see all these writers that are writing stuff that just I can't relate to, really. And I think it's really hard for South Asian writers to get the recognition they deserve. I feel like it's a fight, like Mm -hmm. a real fight to get there. And, you know, maybe I will one day, but if I do, it will be down the self-publishing route. So I I think it's unlikely I'll get a book deal. I mean, that would be great, but I don't think it's going to happen. You know, you mentioned the microaggressions and the lack of diversity in the publishing world. And I would love to, I'm not sure how well this question can be answered, but 
you know, you worked in a corporate kind of sense, almost, you know, big industry for tech. How does the microaggression and the toxic environment differ between what is you mentioned for the publishing and when you worked in corporate? Because I know like my, my sister works in corporate and she has to deal with microaggressions almost weekly, almost daily. So how do you believe they differ? Hmm, that's interesting. Um, I'd say they're the same then because, oh. yeah, I'd say they're the same, but publishing is, this is a really bad example, but have you seen The Devil Wears Prada? I, or I know that microaggressions aren't addressed there. I have to be the one percent who has never watched it. I have seen it. Um, I, I thought it was entertaining. Uh, what, what do you, yeah, but what, do you, what, what specifically about that was Roberta? Well, just imagine if, what was the name of that actress? I can't remember her name. Um, that played the lead role. Oh, I can't remember her name. But imagine if she was Asian in that film. Imagine oh, if wow. she was black, maybe. Oh, wow. That, yeah. So if you thought that film was bad, and that was an accurate description of the publishing world, imagine what it would have been like for... You're, you're talking about Meryl Streep. You're talking about Meryl Streep's character. Uh, no, the, her assistant. Oh, She's Anne American. Hathaway. That's Anne Hathaway. it. Okay. Anne Hathaway, yes. So imagine if Anne Hathaway was a black woman or South Asian. That was a very accurate description, I felt, of the publishing world, right? Maybe exaggerated in some areas, but quite accurate. But imagine if it was South a-, a South Asian woman playing Anne, Hath- Anne Hathaway's role. Oh, my God. That would have been like microaggressions on steroids. <laughs> And I can't help but think what that must be like for South Asian women that do work in publishing. You know, I I might hear about it on Twitter or if I follow a blog or something and people will openly talk about their experiences. And it's really bad. Um, In comparison to the tech industry, to answer your your question, Nisha, it's probably more or less the same. Um, But I would say that the tech industry, there's a little bit more representation there. You will see more Asians. You will see more people from the Black African or Black Caribbean community. Mm -hmm. You will see more Europeans. And there probably is a little bit more diversity there. But it's the leadership is where I would say is the problem because you don't see that much diversity in, in the leadership positions. Right, right. You're, you're inspiring me because the thing is, I'm really young I, and I have yet to enter any sort of career field. I'm still on my journey of exploring. And as for youth and as for many of youth who will be listening to this, what do you recommend them when they have to deal with these sort of blocks from the South Asian community when dealing with mental health and dealing with grief? Because, you know, the older generation, again, you mentioned generational where there wasn't the proper enhancement of these subjects. How would you recommend the youth goes about it? Would they, would you recommend listening to a podcast or reaching out to adults outside of the South Asian community? You know, I think we should have open conversations at home to begin with, I think for our youth today, we should try to have those open conversations at home because that's where it starts. Mm -hmm. 
and we need to be better at listening and learning. We have very poor listening skills. I don't care what anyone says. Everyone's got really poor listening skills. We can keep improving on them. And I think this, for our South Asian youth, we just need to have those conversations at home about how we're really feeling with our caregivers. But outside of that, if we're not able to, because I realise people have different circumstances and different things going on at home where that might not be possible, yeah, listen to a podcast, uh, read a book, go to a deaf cafe, um, maybe create your own space, start a blog. If you if you're interested in therapy, explore therapy. Go to a charity where they offer free bereavement support. If you've got a lot going on in life and you've just gone through a bereavement and you need somebody to talk to you that's impartial outside of your family system, there's nothing wrong with going to a charity that offers that support, you know, or listening to a podcast or talking to your friends. And I think that's the way to do it. But again, it really comes back to the context of what the family situation is and kind of what the narrative of that person's story is because not, you know, it's not one sheaf you know size will fit all if that makes sense Mm -hmm. right exactly exactly I like that you mentioned that not everyone has the home circumstance to be able to do that um because that's really important we don't recognize that a lot of times South Asian parents will immediately sort of diminish a youth when they're talking about these issues that's really important um going into that and just into your podcast as a whole what do you envision as being the ultimate goal for your podcast is it to educate others is it to provide a hand when they're going through tough times what do you believe is the biggest impact you wish to make uh yeah so you you touched on it there it is an education piece a lot of the listeners write into me Um, some reveal who they are some of it's anonymous and it is about listening and learning Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's the key factor of what I hope all of the listeners get out of listening to bereavement room is that they are listening and they are learning and that they can help support somebody that is grieving or help heal themselves if they if they haven't or just openly reflect and think about things in in a way that is palatable for them. But really it is a listening and learning tool. And I feel very grateful to all my listeners that write in and tell me <laughs> how they're like, oh, I never knew this existed. And, you know, it's so wonderful to hear from so many people across the diaspora and, you know, it's so necessary. And that's all I can really hope for that people are listening and are learning and, that's enough for me. Do you ever get feedback from people that, hey, you know, I'd rather not talk about it? Because obviously talking about it does help. But I'm sure there's also uh, people that want to just engage in escapism um, and just, you know, not talk about, you know, what's what, what's giving them. Do you ever get that? Like, like, you know, I'd rather not talk about it. So why am I going to talk about it? Make me feel worse. That's really common. I don't get that feedback from my listeners, but that's actually a common thing in bereavement. And that is translated, if I decipher that, it's translated into the pain is too much. I'm not ready to go there yet. 
and I, that's okay. And then some people might just listen, but they, they don't want to engage in it further. They got what they needed to get out of it. And I'm sure many of my subscribers and listeners have listened, but they don't feel the need to write in or go there. Uh, they've listened to it and that's enough. And that's also okay, you know? Yeah, everybody has their own uh, timeline of how to deal with it. What do you think about these? Nowadays, the social media companies are converting the person's profile into sort of a an online like a homage page have you seen it have you what do you think about those do you think that that's a net positive sorry what kind of page was that a remembrance so, page oh. um yeah exactly i'm sorry that's, ah, that's okay. what they probably got a remembrance page so it's like the person's page they just convert it to and then people can forever sort of kind of speak to the person or you know comment on their page yeah, I think, you know, if we're living in the age of social media and technology, you know, people are now taking pictures in cemeteries and posting about their funerals now, which is something that you would never have done back then um, or might be seen as taboo in some cases. You know, remembrance pages and blogs and social media pages, converting that into a memory, I think that's a great thing and there's nothing wrong with that. People like to remember in different ways. And if that means a year down the line on an anniversary, you want to comment on a picture or leave it, you know, to view stories or to do something or create something, that's okay. But what's wrong with that? I don't see anything that's wrong with that. That's just love and remembering someone that was significant to you in your life. You know, to sort of conclude a really impactful conversation since you know we are getting to the end I would just like to ask you one last brief question and that's for not just youth but anybody who's really pondering on the idea on how to create a space maybe not for bereavement maybe not for grief maybe for mental health maybe for eating disorders maybe for so on and so forth how would you recommend somebody does that? What is a piece of advice you would briefly like everybody to take with them? I get asked that question a lot from the younger generation. <laughs> <laughs> and particularly from my guests who are all a decade or a decade and a half younger than me. And I'm not being ageist here because this isn't about ageism or anything like that. But it is a common question. And I sit there and I think, why have they asked that? Is that because of all of this pressure about being perfect? And if you're going to launch something or create something, it needs to be well done to begin with. And it has to be perfect so that you can get this many fun followers no my my guidance and I don't like giving advice but if I have to give advice to anyone that's younger that's listening that wants to create something whether it's related to grief bereavement eating disorders technology whatever it is you have to start somewhere and it's not always going to be perfect there are going to be flaws and you can't expect to get one million followers after a week it doesn't you know it it, it, it doesn't work like that and I think often in this day and age everything is about popularity and not talent mm, mm -hmm. and, and I, I think we would do well to remember that so what I would say to anyone that's listening if you want to create something you've got an idea please go and do it because you don't know who you're going to be helping and you don't know what this could turn into and it doesn't have to 
you know, have a massive following and get all the big media coverage, you know, start small, work with your grassroots, just like you and I are doing. I've come on the Bengalis of New York podcast, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, this is a great way to start. I think that we put too much expectations on ourselves. Don't have any expectations. You've got an idea, run with it, see how it goes. It doesn't have to be a big rush, rush. I need to do this. You can do things slowly. And, right. and and build on that. And I, you know, maybe it's me speaking from pre-social media. I had so many ideas back then, which I wish I followed up on. I wish I followed up on that because it would have been great now. But I'm only doing these things, you know, a decade later, which is okay. But I would just say you got an idea, please do it now. Because I think starting it now is a, is a good place because we're living in a time where we can openly talk about things like microaggressions and diversity and racism and eating disorders and whatnot. Whereas back when I was at uni, these things were almost like a dirty word. I couldn't really talk about diversity or Mm. inclusion. You just weren't allowed to go there. And you've got an idea, run with it, do it. Don't let anything stop you. And it doesn't have to be perfect. That's all I can really say. You know, you said you don't like giving advice, but I must say this is a really good piece of advice. So I'm very, very thankful you mentioned that and for everybody who's listening. So thank you so much for coming on, Kosuma. This was a really great conversation. Thank Thank you. Thanks, Cam. Thanks, Nisha. And can I just say that I can't remember how we found each other, but I only recently stumbled on the podcast and... Really, it's come at a, a timely point in my life. I think it's one, wonderful what you're doing, you know, giving a platform to voices across the Bengali community. I think it's so necessary and I have been listening and I think it's wonderful. So thank you so much for creating your space and inviting me here today. Thank you. Of course. Gotta be honest With diamonds and pearls Yeah, yeah Bengalis in New York All over the world uh, It's the bony show uh, hey. Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live From the slang we spit To the gangs we with It doesn't matter We the essence of the Bangladesh I say, hey, come on Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live